There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. Plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford historian, a broadcaster and a writer, but most importantly, I'm your chief investigator of images. I'm coming to you from a wonderful place today, the Watts Gallery in Compton, which is just outside Guildford and a real treasure trove. It has thoroughly excited me, opened my eyes, and I'm here for a new exhibition, which we're going to talk a bit about. Um, and I'm joined by Nick Trumans, who is the curator here, aren't you? Uh, that is correct. Thank you, Janina. Great to hear your enthusiastic words. Uh, <laughs> the exhibition we've got on that we're standing in is called G.F. Watts, England's Michelangelo. Mm. Quite a grand title. Big claim. So Big come claim. on, Nick, how do we support Big this claim. claim? Well, first of all, it was a phrase used by Watts' contemporaries. He mm. lived in the 19th century of Victorian, at a period when artists were taken hugely seriously by their contemporaries, and this was a nickname that Watts was given. It was given partly because of his huge ambitions, just looking around the room we're standing in now. You can see these massive, multi-metre tall pictures with these mm. grandiose figures. But also because of the range of the artists. Uh, Watts was a painter of oil pictures, of frescoes, murals, a great draftsman, also a very great and ambitious sculptor. Mm. So that range of media was felt to reflect back upon the Renaissance. Also, Watts had lived in Italy for several years and he liked to look at the part of a Renaissance artist wearing a great cloak and a little skull cap. So he was often felt to be a kind of Renaissance artist who had somehow popped up again in Victorian England. Right. So you see, this is, this, the claim seems more supported once you look at the themes as well, because what I love about this exhibition, when's the exhibition running? Do you give the us exhibition the closes on the 26th of November. Oh, hurry so up, So do people. please hurry. You've got a few weeks left, but not long. Yeah, But there is a November. permanent collection here at Watts anyway that you there can is. see, isn't there? There is. Our collection is based primarily on the work of G.F. Watts. We have the largest collection of his work anywhere. And mm. for this exhibition, we've augmented that collection with some super-duper highlights from other collections. The good news is that some of the super generous lenders, both museums and private collectors, are going to let us hang on to some of these loans 
after the end of the exhibition. So even if you oh. can't make it here by the 26th, still come, because you'll see some special things. Well, I have been utterly blown away by the loan you've got from Toronto, is it? That's right, yeah. Is that, it called the Sower of the, the Systems? The Sower of the Systems, let's have a look at it. Yeah, well, we, um, we're going we're gonna to focus in on his famous big hit, Hope, aren't we? But I do think we can have a look at the ones yeah. that you've managed to get along, because, to be honest, this excites me the most. Well, you're, I think you're not alone there amongst art historians. A lot of art historians have found this to be a really particularly exciting picture in Watts' late work. He painted it when he was something like 86. Um, God, very, 86 yeah, years old, because he lived yeah, a long yeah, life, he? Didn't he did. He had a sort of 70-year career, started Amazing. work as a teenager, died with his boots on at 87. So he has a, <laughs> he has a, very, he has a very long career. And this, as you can see, is what well, you want to call it, a figure. It's not even really a figure. It's like an animated cloak uh, moving dramatically diagonally across the uh, picture plane. The you only can, real indication of humanity really is the hand, isn't it? And the rest is all suggested, and the foot. Just about get a foot, a heel, mm. and you can just about get a hand, but the hand is so stylized, it's hardly a hand, is it? It's all more like a, some kind of explosion. But the colour, um, I mean, it's the colour. I, I walked yeah. into this room, and that burst, it's, it is like flame coming out of the canvas, isn't it? Yeah. And, yeah. and for, for him to have been so elderly when he created it as well, I mean, it's, to me, this is truly visionary stuff. It's it's, 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 well, the timing is fascinating. It, it dates from the beginning of the 20th century. Watts was absolutely a Victorian. In fact, his memories go all the way back to the 1830s. So he has a hugely long career, but he lives into the 20th century. And of course, as you'll know as an art historian, abstract painting officially gets its starting pistol just a few years after this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it really is on the cusp of symbolism morphing into abstraction. Oh. And um, because it was executed at the very end of Watts' career, uh, and the artist died soon afterwards, the picture kind of didn't become famous in its own day. It's been retrospectively rediscovered as a picture that looks ahead to abstraction, and indeed to the way that art and science can speak to each other. This is Mm. arguably the first image of the Big Bang. It's meant to be the moment of the creation of the universe, but personified and expressed as an allegory. And this is what I find absolutely fascinating about Watts. I love him because he is a man poised on the modern world, but he is looking back to the classical tradition, to the great tradition of history paintings, of you know, large canvases that tell you a story to improve you, and, and so he's personified the sower of the solars, uh, of the systems. Uh-huh. But actually, he's getting this inspiration from the very earliest developments of telescopes and things, isn't he? Ex- exactly right. So Watts was a great reader of the newspapers of the day. He and his wife, Mary Watts, used to cuddle up in the evenings and read the latest literature to each other. She's Science. brilliant too, though, isn't she, Mary? Well, she's, she's a fascinating figure, woman, yeah. absolutely. And she's someone whose story we've only really been uncovering in the last few years. But one thing we've learned through Mary Watts' diary is exactly what they did read to each other. Gosh. And one of the books we know they read to together was just as you say a book that was what we would now call a kind of popularizing book of science it wasn't written by a a research scientist but a book that reproduced some of the first long-range astronomical photography so that anybody could pick up this book from the high street and see these distant galaxies for the first time and Watts was blown away by this in his 80s and he did um, what people had done for millennia which was to look at these beautiful patterns and start to read into them human and animal shapes and so he's imagined being able to see within these amazing spiraling patterns of the galaxies a human figure i always compare it to an olympic hammer thrower you know gearing up round and round and funny (laughs) it totally has that feeling it's like a it's it's absolutely in motion and actually that's what i find 
there is a drama and, and, and movement in so many of his paintings. I'm enamoured with that one over there, the in, um, Endymion. Endymion, which, again, I love because Endymion, you know, the myth, the story that um, Diana is so in love with him that he wants him to have eternal youth. But then he becomes this sort of static sculpture figure at the bottom and she is this fluid arc of energy I mean that to me is scientific like a ball of energy don't you think again I mean these parallels between art and science are very interesting I mean to me that looks like some kind of exactly as you said disembodied figure Mm. Uh, a wave pattern perhaps you know you think about all the early science of the late 19th century of uh, the new understanding of energy transmitted through wave patterns that's kind of what it looks like to me this is an interesting example of a picture that Watts came to and went away from and came back to over decades. We think it was begun as early as the 1860s. Really? Because uh, it's not finished till almost his death. Till his death. And then laid aside, and we do have some photographs of this very canvas in our archive, which show that by around 1900 it still wasn't quite finished. Gosh. So he's obviously come back to it right at the very end of his life and repeated himself. Uh, there's Endymion's dog. Some people call it a lion, but I'm saying it's a dog. <laughs> he being a shepherd and all. Um, the figure of the male uh, character, as you say, is like a sculpture. He's borrowed from the Elgin marbles, from the Parthenon frieze, yeah. uh, or pediment sculptures, rather. And there, yeah, Diana imagined, again, as this divine presence, what was, like so many late Victorian agnostics, haunted by the idea of divinity. He, he of course, he didn't believe any longer, in a, as he put it himself, in a, in, a, in a wise old man with a big beard making everything hunky-dory. Mm. Um, what he did believe in were uh, parallels between ancient beliefs in God and divinities and modern science. He even almost at some points seems to say that he believes that science is God, Mm. that the laws of science are the laws of religion. Mm. So there's this fascinating mixing up of myth, legend and science in his late work that um, academics and the public, I have to say, are really responsive to. I think that's what makes him in, in so many ways such a modern... Victorian painter because it's not the old allegories it's not all biblical material I mean there is there are these so many nods to classical myths in here Um, and I love the fact that Diana is shaped like a crescent moon as well so Mm. referencing her role as moon goddess but Mm -hmm. but but alongside us we've got these three portraits of Eve which you know again you could say this is an altarpiece this is a triptych this is religious but Mm -hmm. it's messing with the religious ideas isn't it it's it's using the shapes the formats it's it's arguably borrowing the authority of religious art and then sticking into it something different something slightly different sticking into it allegories of modern life modern feeling now when I say modern life I do not mean you know he's gone down the post office or uh, the local (laughs) railway station he did do a bit of that realism back in the 1840s as a young man yeah I can't he painted, imagine him to painting trains. Well, and <laughs> so I'm exaggerating slightly, but he did paint, um, well, we can just about see it from here. Oh, the boat. Found, well, found drowned. Oh, that found drowned, yes. image of the woman who's thrown herself off Waterloo Bridge. Uh, probably the most single famous, most... Um, mm. Well, it's the, I'd say it's the picture that, that, that gets uh, reproduced most in really? that collection. Yeah, more people asked to borrow that or to reproduce it. And we have another picture in the collection, not presently on show, mm. a hugely emotive picture of the Irish famine. Mm. Uh, probably the only large-scale painting by an English artist of the Irish famine during it, the tragedies taking place in the 1840s. Because that's um, the other thing we have to note about Watts, isn't it? That he's a philanthropist, he's, a, uh, he's deeply uh, invested yeah. in, in social yeah. regeneration yeah. at lots of different levels, isn't he? We actually held a conference in this very room uh, four days ago on Monday that um, asked the question, how did artists in the late 19th century... Mm 
take advantage of their increased social stating, status and standing to follow and promote political causes in which they were interested in. So that ranges all the way from someone like Holman Hunt, the Pre-Raphaelite, who was a passionate Zionist that came out of his knowledge of Jerusalem, uh, to someone like Watts, whose passions were much more about uh, liberal politics, which were about uh, the promotion of women in uh, society, which were about things like animal rights. Um, mm. In other words, all the kind of causes that today nobody would blink an eye at. But so in the 19th soft century... Soft liberal causes. Though, soft liberal they? causes. And what's his connection to what we would now call liberal politics? It goes all the way back to the 1840s when he was promoted by a circle of aristocratic liberal um, uh, politicians mm. uh, and, um, and landowners who supported his early career. And that belief in a kind of progress driven ultimately by an elite is something he, he, he believes in. Watts was never... A William Morris-style revolutionary. Uh-huh. He Watts was never to be found on any barricade or anywhere, no. <laughs> or anywhere near one. Yeah, but he had this strange authority, partly by his consistency of vision and his relentless pursuit of the same few fundamental themes mm. for 50, 60 years. By the time he was an old man, people looked to him as a, as a guru, as a leader, as a figure of great moral authority. So people would come and ask him the most extraordinary questions. They'd say to him, Mr. Watts, this is like in the 1890s. Mm. What do you think about the bicycle? <laughs> then a brand new sort of shocking thing. Mr. Watts, what do you think about the trade union agitation of the day? Gosh. Um, what do you think about women's suffrage? And they, people wanted his opinion because he was this grand old man who could name drop Disraeli, could name drop Gladstone, Tennyson, Swinburne, yeah. you know, you name it. He'd met them in the 19th century. And that, by 1900, say, seemed to be a huge um, presence um, in British culture, Watts was this kind of national treasure. But he was also deeply tied into celebrity, wasn't he? I mean, that's one of the themes yeah. of this exhibition because he painted the portraits of very important people. Very important people, some very glamorous people. Mm. Uh, that is one of the intriguing and rather some touching things about Watts that on one hand, he had this very um, slightly portentous, one might even say pompous approach to portraiture, which was that he wanted to make sure that the National Portrait Gallery in London did not risk missing getting hold of images of the people who were great and still living. Because mm. when the portrait gallery was founded, an immediate problem was, oh, crumbs, there seem to be all these famous British people back in the, you name it, whichever century, and we don't have any portraits of them. So what said, well, let's make sure we don't make the same mistake in our own age. Mm. I'll go and paint them right now. Great. But then he seemed to sort of have this quite sort of penchant for sort of ringing up, or, you know, writing to famous actresses, so, you know, <laughs> Lily Langtry, you know, the great, the great beauties of the day, saying, I think you ought to come and have your portrait painted. And then he would chat away at them and he would never quite finish the portrait. And, you know, he would have this incredible social life. Um, and he became incredibly well-connected and incredibly well-informed about the politics and social life of the day without ever leaving home. Because people just came to him to have his portrait, their portraits painted. Good Everybody great. from... As I say, glamorous actresses to great imperial statesmen to uh, churchmen, scientists, actually not so many scientists, but a couple, uh, musicians, uh, but above all, authors and painters. Those were the people he really was interested in, writers and painters. Now, there is a slightly unfortunate connection between him and Cecil Rhodes, isn't there? Now, how did that come about? Well, if we think that Cecil Rhodes is unfortunate, which is fair enough, then, you know, Rhodes came into contact with an awful lot of people and places. Exactly. And one of the people he came into contact with was, was Watts. Uh, Watts had a big house in London, and it was well-known. Next known, door to Leighton. Right next door really to Leighton House. That's right. I mean, because Leighton House so chimes with these sorts of colours yeah. and textures, doesn't it? And it's a great loss that, sadly, whilst Leighton House, thank goodness, survives as a wonderful museum, uh, 
Watts's house was demolished in the 1960s. But that house in London um, had a sign outside it saying, you know, this is the residence of Mr. G.F. Watts. Please come in and look at the picture gallery. Wow. Anybody, and he, Watts was, as you were saying quite rightly earlier, was a great one for, you know, a liberal thinking, opening up stuff for everybody. He wanted people to come in and see his picture. So anybody could walk it up the street. And the story goes that Cecil Rhodes was walking down the street, saw this sign and went in and said to Mr. Watts, I think you should paint my portrait. Do you know who I am? Mm. I'm terribly important. Uh, then Rhodes dies. Young people f- often forget this, that Rhodes dies in his 40s. Gosh, um, he dies very young uh, with this kind of, as it was seen at the time, huge ambition incomplete, as we would now say, you know, uh, the ambition is probably too um, nice a word for it. Uh, <laughs> program. Um, <laughs> program of, 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 of well... Now it's not the public occasion to go into it to choose the perfect words, but mm. obviously opinions about those who expanded the British Empire using violence mm-hmm. is, 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 has changed a kind of 180 degrees. Of course it has. Now, what happened with Watts was that uh, Watts <coughs> did paint Rhodes' portrait. Watts instinctively disliked him to start with, mm. but then did come to feel some respect for what he'd achieved, uh, or at least from what Watts was told he'd achieved. Watts never went to Africa, so of course never saw with his own eyes. But there was a famous sculpture that Watts was uh, still working on when he was visited by Rhodes called Physical Energy. Huge horse with a, with a huge rider. An incredible object. And a bit like Sir of the Systems that we were looking at, a work that stands on the cusp again between, I think, symbolism and It's almost and, got and futurist modernism. elements because the yep. way that the horse's body is reduced and the legs become <clears throat> mobile in, in a way I've never seen in an equestrian sculpture. It is an extraordinary sculpture. It, it's absolutely of, uh, unique. I mean, the, yes. it's very, very difficult to think of anything else to compare it to apart from, as you say, maybe paintings by people like the futurists. Uh, that's, that's very interesting. But the British government felt... Rhodes had died too young, they wanted to commemorate him, they felt, as often happens when a sort of hugely famous person dies young, there's a huge outpouring of national emotion, people think we must do something, there has to be a big monument, so the government said, well, what would be an appropriate image to represent Rhodes's incredible uh, drive? And everyone said, well, some people said, physical energy by G.F. Watts, so the sculpture was cast to become part of the Rhodes Memorial just outside Cape Town, which indeed took place. But the crucial thing to emphasise is that Watts himself never intended the sculpture no. to be for Rhodes, of Rhodes, and then to do Rhodes. And then shortly afterwards, in the 1920s, the sculpture, this is after Watts' death by this time, of course, the sculpture, or at least the image of it, the outline of it, was adopted by the Labour Publishing Company, which was a kind of intellectual branch of the Labour movement that published all the great kind of socialist uh, or even communist or even anarchist mm. tracts of the period and all under the logo of physical energy. So, you know, physical energy is, as so many of the pictures in this room are, um, a very open-ended abstract allegory. And, and I was... think also it's, it's, it's unfair in a way to tie him to someone like Rhodes because in, they were diametrically opposed in, in many, many ways, weren't, weren't they? And, uh... in, in, as, personalities, as personalities, totally. Yeah. I mean, there's Rhodes, you know, stocky, powerful, bullish chap... Um, priding himself almost on his lack of culture, man of action, get out of my way, I've got to develop the British <laughs> Empire. Whereas, whereas Watts is, oh gosh, I don't know, let me think about that, I'm rather worried about that. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's, he's a slightly anxious he's intellectual type. But, I but, but I, what I don't want to do is, 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 is make it sound like, oh, Watts was on the good side exactly. and Rhodes was on the bad side. Yeah. Um, you know, good, history doesn't work like that. No way. As you, as you know very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't, and we shouldn't, even if we were tempted to, try to divide people who are dead up into the good oh, guys gosh, and the bad absolutely. guys. 
It, does, it just doesn't work like that. But that's why it's such an interesting tale, because what it actually forces us to do as art historians is really dig as detectives and take yeah. our, own, our, our own modern judgments out yeah. of the situation I mean, and say this is a vibrant London full of art, full of creativity and full of yeah. celebrities... Yeah who are rubbing up alongside And full other. of power, and oh, full yes. of the channels of power, and full of the arteries of power, and artworks get swept up in them. I mean, a good example that many uh, people listening to this might be able to remember is Jacques-Louis David, mm. the, the famous French painter, who is the painter of the French Revolution, and then a few years later, he's the painter of Napoleon. Absolutely. And what does that mean, that, that David <laughs> um, is in, you know, inconsistent in his politics? Possibly. But of course, what it really proves is that art um, is almost always uh, um, the tool of the, the, the very power. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. So it's a very rare artist and conceivably you might want to argue that Picasso is one of them who's able to um, resist that kind of uh, uh, switching between political allegiances. Uh, What's was in many ways very naive politically. He believed in his very high-minded ideals of progress and charity and love. And, mm. um, oh, love and, is, and, is the Which is everywhere in this room. Everywhere in this room. Yeah. So when it came down to doing business with people like Rhodes and, and the kind of senior politicians who wanted physical energy to commemorate Rhodes, someone like Watts was not in a position to push them back. No. And I think... I mean, that draws us on the idea of power and continuing power to the one that we really were going to examine, which is his famous painting, Hope. Now, I make this connection with power because, as I understand it, this image and a sermon about it inspired President Obama. Is that right? Well, it it does, for all the world, sound like one of those stories that a curator might make up to try and big up their collection. (laughs) But it is actually true, and I am, um, you know, very... Uh, quick to admit that there are urban myths about this painting and urban myths about what's generally... There's a great urban myth about hope, which shows this 
forlorn young woman curled up in a fetal kind of pain, trying to uh, coax music from a, a, a lyre that is destroyed. All its strings are broken except one. She's blindfolded, isolated on a globe, pinging around the universe. She has no idea where she is. It's called Hope, and the standard joke that people have made about it for many decades is that it actually represents despair mm. and the challenge of wrenching hope back from despair. And there's a wonderful urban legend that Nelson Mandela had a print of this painting in his cell on Robin Island, and it helped him get through those terrible years of imprisonment. And are we supposed to see that as, an, as a myth, then? It's not true. <laughs> but it's a classic myth in the sense of it should be true. And wouldn't it be great <laughs> if it were true? And everybody would really quite like it to be true. And maddeningly, it's not. But, but the Obama one is. But more interestingly, <laughs> because it's true, is the fact that this is a painting that has a very strange life. After Watts' death and the kind of total collapse of the reputation of Victorian artists in the 1920s and 30s when, you know, the Bloomsbury group and the modernists look back on Victorian allegory and Victorian genre painting and just, well, I was going to say they laughed at it. They didn't even bother to laugh. They just walked on, just ignored it. It was just nothing to them. It was empty. It wasn't art at all. But um, Hope um, reappears on several occasions and we're actually undertaking some research right now on this with a PhD student uh, who's working with us from the University of Surrey uh, what's his image of hope turns up in several occasions in an African-American context uh, in the civil rights movement. So Martin Luther King preaches a whole sermon mm. about this painting. Uh, it appears in a couple of plays put on by um, African-American uh, 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 playwrights how the beginning of the 20th century. Do we know how and why it is travelling over? And Well, we know that the painting was mass reproduced mm. in both colour prints and in black and white photography. And we know that it just seems to have been one of those pictures, as Watts always hoped it would be, and indeed how he hoped most of his pictures would be, it meant totally different things to different people in different circumstances. Okay. I mean, if this painting is about uh, being in despair but somehow still managing to carve out hope, then which individual has not had that experience mm-hmm. and usually in a very private way considers it to be one of the most profound experiences of their life to have recovered hope um, everyone's been through that some in a more extreme way than others so it was a picture and we know this from the letters we have in our archive from people all around well I won't say all around the world but you know from lots of different places mm. uh, writing to Watts or Mrs Watts after GF's death saying I just want you to know that this picture saved my life yeah um, which sounds an extraordinary thing to say about a Victorian painting, but this is what people experience. And they, it, the reason it helped them was to realise that hope perhaps isn't all jolly, singing, dancing, slap you on the back, having a great time. Hope can actually be the thing you discover at your lowest point. And I think that that message was hugely powerful in various political contexts. And it turns out to have somehow got under the skin of the African-American civil rights movement Jeremiah Wright, a veteran campaigner in that cause, although, of course, slightly politically compromised, it has to be said, later in his career, was uh, a big figure in Chicago when President Obama was a young man still contemplating a move from law to politics. He talks about, in his own autobiography, so it's from the horse's mouth, attending a sermon in Chicago uh, based on this painting and how he realised at the end of the sermon that his life had changed almost without realising it, that he had seen some kind of, not literally, because the sermon, of course, is a verbal description. I mean, President Obama would not have been able at that point to have visualised the picture. He only was hearing a verbal description by Jeremiah Wright. But uh, the image of uh, something being rescued from nowhere 
obviously made him feel, gosh, it's time for me to stop making excuses and go and make a difference. So it was his awakening in many ways into politics. But I yeah. have to say, the thing that has struck me so profoundly in this particular room, which you've called Cosmos, this part... This whole room, yeah. Um, is, ..is the transcendental. And, and through that, I mean people like Blake... Yeah. See the world in a grain of sand. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the transcendental linked to love and a, and a sort of a divine love, because the I mean, mm-hmm. last book I wrote was on Julian of Norwich, and okay. her yeah, phrase yeah. is, all shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Yeah. And in the same way that you're saying hope as a painting has inspired people through their darkest times, there is something about the mystical, the transcendental, that, that gets people through the dark, because mm-hmm. out of this sort of despair comes one thread that it will be okay mm-hmm. and it will be okay through love and that's a really it, it seems like a theme that, that Watts was exploring that Blake was exploring well totally mm. um, if, if you look maybe just finish with, it, the, with love and life well, over exactly, here exactly that's is, what I was thinking of story around it I mean this is uh, uh, the kind of image that could have been in a 17th century mm-hmm. Christian emblem book mm-hmm. Uh, where you would combine religious poetry with simple but effective, almost diagrams of, 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 of kind of arguments about life and religion. Love is this powerful male figure with these huge wings yeah. who is helping um, this very skinny, I was going to say woman, but she's really a kind of child or, or a but very old teenager. Andro- androgyny, actually. It's one of the yeah. things I've been fascinated by is how androgynous a lot of his female figures are. Like the aurora you have in the centre. This, this sculpture is both. Not, both. My, not one or the other, but both, right? Totally. Exactly. And, exactly. and actually, I think you've got that here with life. Actually, there's a, there's a confusion between the genders of both, isn't there? It's sort of gender fluid in some ways. Very, very, very fluid. Um, one critic rather unkindly said it looked like um, uh, two young people who've gone backpacking, but... Foolishly forgotten to dress for the occasion, <laughs> which, which is which is kind of sweet. But it's so brutally simple. It's, it is, it, it, and this is what Watts's contemporaries found shocking that that he was able to just state these allegories so directly mm-hmm. without any kind of um, little trick to say how self-conscious he was and how aware he was that he was doing something a bit old-fashioned. But he, you know, don't worry, it's still modern. Um, no, you, you get it totally pure, totally direct. Uh, love is helping life up the rocky path of her existence. Life, the girl, isn't going to get there without love to help her. That's it. Yeah. As simple and as complex, as profound and as trivial and I mean, uh, as that. This is where I think what is so completely at odds with things like the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, because, yeah. I mean, you've got the hint of the daisies under his feet, yeah. but in that respect, there is none of the horrendous sort of symbol searching that you have to do with some pre-Raphaelites. Yeah. And I think that, actually, two more paintings just that I really want to highlight before we mm, stop, sure. that got me, got me goosebumpy, is this, a sea ghost. Sea ghost, wonderful picture. And then also, after the deluge and I think that the reason they both struck me they're both very Turner-esque in their style but they have got this simple narrative underneath them which often Turner didn't need a narrative these are clearly giving you instruction and guidance aren't they they're, they're, they're strange pictures. I mean, yeah. they're, they're, they're almost um, abstract decorations. I mean, we were saying, weren't we, that the So of the Systems is almost an abstract painting. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. Um, the, the After the Deluge pretty much is an abstract painting. It is. I it mean, is. 
okay, you can say that the big blobby stuff is the sun and the stuff below that's a bit green is the water. Okay, if you say so, and the blue stuff is the sky. But come on, that is basically an abstract painting. It's astonishing. And I think it's even more abstract than anything Turner does, really, because of the symmetry and the way in which the, the... There is nothing. There is nothing. There is no feature in this at all. There's not a boat, there's not a shoreline, there's not a tree. It is just the sun, just isn't it? And, and, and in some ways, it's a bit like hope, in the idea of, of reducing you know, hope to, to, to nothingness and then building it up again. This is the re-emergence of the, of the sun, of the light after Noah's deluge, the, 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 the legendary 40 days and 40 nights uh, of God's punishment. And, of course, therefore, there isn't anything. Everything's been absolutely destroyed in the mm-hmm. flood, and all that there is when that degree zero is reached... Uh, when the turning point comes, is the light. Uh, And it's about the re-emergence of light. And, of course, a picture like this, which is totally symmetrical, Mm. almost entirely abstract, Mm. you can't really hang it, if you're going to hang it, anywhere other than the centre of your longest wall because it ain't going to fit in anywhere else. I mean, it's it's, it's a shape, it's a pattern, it's it's an abstract statement. And so we we, we plonk that as the centrepiece of the show. We put this big sculpture of Aurora, Dawn, next to it, She's throwing off her gown to reveal herself as the resplendent new day, staring towards the creation of Eve. Um, and then behind her, Clytie, the nymph, who uh, the poets tell us was turned by the gods into a sunflower so she could raise her head up and down and watch the trajectory of the, the sun every day. Yeah. So uh, It's beautifully curated. Well, I'm so impressed. Thank you. It's, the thing it was, is, I think what you've done is you've shown... Sympathy, you haven't gone chronological particularly, although you can see a slight evolution, because Watts is one of these extraordinary artists who is consistent, isn't he? And that gives you the gift of being thematic. He's, I mean, if, if, I mean, for people who are interested in the way that art in, interacts with ideas, I mean, he's, 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 he's fantastically um, appealing because he starts in the 1840s, really, with these pretty clear ideas that, that life's terrible, the, the world is a fallen place, but even worse, I don't believe in God anymore, and so there's no one to prick it up again. Shit, what am I going to do? Um, and, and the answer is, well, on one hand, I'm going to make some friendships with some extraordinary individuals, yep. and I'm going to look to inspirational men and women to become my friends and to sort of uh, look up to. And then I'm going to step right back from humanity, in the case of Cosmos here, and I'm going to take not exactly um, happiness from, but take solace from this image of human evolution taking place within the context of the broader unfolding of the universe. And if you sort of write that down, it sounds pretty banal, really. It's probably the same as most of us feel. Um, you know, life can be rubbish, but you'll get through it by... Making friend- good friends. By friendships and, and a bit of philosophy. I mean, so, and getting a sense of perspective, exactly. And getting a sense of nicely put. So, so if, you, if you just take that, which perhaps is common sense or the common experience, and then it's refracted through these different art phases. And as we've said several times in our conversation, you know, what's moves through um, romanticism. He can remember, this is someone who can, you know, um, whose lifetime and uh, his career overlaps with people like Turner, mm-hmm. Constable, Wordsworth. Then he can remember the great realists of the 1840s, your Corbets. He can remember the pre-Raphaelites, the Impressionists, uh, yeah, the great illustrators of the 1860s, then he gets to know uh, the uh, symbolists. And then in, in his um, very last years, he's, whilst he's still alive, he's influencing Picasso, the young Picasso. Hope uh, yes. is an influence on paintings that Picasso made in his blue period around 1900, whilst Watts was still alive. So, you know, this is someone who moves from Turner to Picasso. He's and those two paintings. So... Uh, 
to watch that fundamental philosophy of life be move through our history is, is just really, I find, very, very exciting to, to, to think back through. I'm not surprised. I mean, I am utterly seduced by the things I'm seeing because, as I say, I think that Watts, unlike any other of the Victorian painters... Uh, I love Leighton. I love Leighton's use of colour. I love mm. his sculpture. But, but Watts seems to have taken that and tried to explore something deeper, something that is, that is going beyond the human and yet putting human beings firmly into the narrative. And he does that unlike anyone else. I, I think his, his things are timeless. And there was a sad period, I know, in 30 Hope was taken off public of, of exhibition in the Tate, wasn't it? And Victorian yeah. painting was very much out of fashion. The, the 30s was the, was, the, was, the, was, the, was the nadir, really. Um, you know, 1930s was a period when the only people writing about the Victorian artist was, was Evelyn Waugh. Yeah. And he only did it just to annoy everybody else, you know, <laughs> just, to, just to, like, wind all the intellectuals up. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, there's a terrible moment in 1933 when there's a centenary exhibition of Burne Jones oh, yeah. to celebrate the, cent- the 100 years of, since the birth of Burne Jones. Great big exhibition. And basically, nobody goes, oh. nobody cares. <gasps> Everyone just walks through it saying, where are the, where are the sick of paintings? <laughs> um, you know, they're just, they're, just it, they're sort of, again, it's not, they, they don't even dislike it. Yeah. They can't be bothered to dislike it. It's just, it's just abandoned, isn't it? I it's mean, it's abandoned. almost a bit it's like... It's like an old car. Like when you found Aurora, because Aurora was just neglected. And in fact, the whole Watts Gallery that we're standing in was neglected, wasn't yeah. it? The building itself was it, in it, 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 It's become uh, very, very derelict. It was actually placed at, on the at-risk register. Good grief. Uh, and there were even conversations taking place um, about the possible need to transfer the entire collection to one of the national museums to preserve it because the building was no longer fit for purpose. I remember visiting it in those days when I first used to come here and uh, you'd come in these main galleries where we are now and it would be so moving because you would feel that you were in the home of, say, someone who had lived to be 120 and had never changed their decoration, and you really felt, goodness me, someone's forgotten to demolish this place. Gosh. It's incredible. How's it survived? Well, you talked about the fact that the artworks were in here, and yet the, the, you know, the wires were hanging out of the walls. And well, that's water. it. And, uh, <laughs> it's, 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 if you, uh, that, that wonderful shock of romanticism lasted about five minutes, yeah. <laughs> and then the smell of damp hit you, and then you would be taken around behind the scenes and you would just see big chunks of masonry collapsing and tendrils of plants forcing their way through and you think, okay... The romantic vision is over, let's get real. Let's and actually save, save this things. place. And yeah. then that was, that's amazingly, it's been done and um, you know, the Watts Gallery is famous for being the home of G.F. Watts, but it's, it's also become, we would like to think, a, a great sort of story of what can be done in terms of fundraising to save a special place. Well, you are pioneers of crowdfunding. You are, uh, you, you know, you managed to secure so much in the way of heritage lottery funding to make something that is iconic and recognised around the country as a huge well, success story. That's very kind, thank you. Well, it is. It's a huge heritage success story. And, and, and I'm very, very moved by this exhibition. I think it's absolutely extraordinary. Please. I have spent the whole day here. You have. It's and I have been infusing from the second I got through the door. Um, Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Do come along, everybody. Come along. England's Michelangelo. You've got a couple more weeks. And then, but do, regardless of the timings, just come to the Watts Gallery in Compton. You will love it. You will fall in love with Watts. Um, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to The Art Detective, which is historyhit.com slash The Art Detective. And I will keep you all up to date on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you again, Nick. It's been incredible. My pleasure. Thank you.
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water... It starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. 